Welcome to uh, We the People, my segment on Umer Khan show. Following up on my first two episodes where I uh, touched base on uh, mental health. And then last time around, I shared some personal experiences on uh, what's been a very prevalent industry phenomenon uh, called the surplus. I wanted to uh, speak about uh, something that has been happening a lot, but something that uh, is uh, so much more pushed under the rug. And uh, it happens in almost all societies, all communities. I wanted to speak with someone from within uh, the South Asian community because uh, it is one of those topics that even though we see happening around us, we really don't care about it because it becomes a matter of respect, matter of uh, ego, or matter of dignity in front of everyone. So uh, I'm going to jump right into it. I've got my guest, Shela. How are you? Hi, and uh, thank you for having me. All right, my pleasure. So what we're talking about is uh, our tendency of uh, trying to attempt to take our own lives. And so many people do it in different contexts. So uh, let me just start by asking you, how long ago was this that you attempted to take your own life? Well, um, for me, it was more connected to my um, postpartum depression. So I have one daughter, she is now 11. So this was about 11 years ago. And uh, the context to it was that I had a very difficult pregnancy. And then, yeah, in, in our part of the world, nobody really talks about postpartum depression. People like me, I didn't even know this could happen. And um, yeah, it was quite unexpected and it, it, it sort of crept up on me. And before I knew it, I just lost all, all, all my will to live, even though, you know, you have this beautiful baby and everything is new and... And and in that point, you just feel like, oh, I have nothing to live for. And what am I doing here? And it's it's just, it overwhelms you. So this was about 11 years ago that I felt this yeah, overwhelming despair, I would say, that yeah, nothing seemed worth living for. And I'm, I'm not going to even say that I can understand because uh, I have not walked your shoes. So, uh, I mean, you're you're very courageous to be um, able to come forward and uh, be willing to speak with me. And in terms of um, what happened to be the tipping point uh, in all this, that, uh, okay, all this was building up and uh, at what point in time uh, the thought came that, okay, you know what, um, I'm done with this. Um, I'm just going to do this or try this. Yeah, well, my circumstances were a bit more complicated than just postpartum depression. Number one, yeah, postpartum depression was a big part of it. And I, I should have asked for help. I knew I didn't feel right. But my circumstances, like I said, were a bit different because uh, when I was pregnant, my mother-in-law, she got diagnosed with breast cancer five months into my pregnancy. So that was, yeah, that was a lot of stress overall on the family, on the relationship with my husband. And then when my daughter was born, my mother also felt sick. She had this um, problem with her spinal cord. So with both mothers being ill, and then after my daughter was born, we found out that my mother-in-law's cancer was terminal. 
So it was a lot of stress on, on, on the relationship because there was no time to discuss what I was going through because everybody was going through so much. And, um, yeah, I was like, you know, you feel like you're all alone in the world and nobody, nobody really cares. And at one point you think, Hmm, would it really make a difference if I was in here tomorrow? Would anybody really miss me? And yeah, I know I was a new mother. I should have thought about my daughter, but it all overwhelms you and it all envelops you like, like this cloud that you can't get out of. And you feel, okay, I, I can't do this anymore. I can't take it anymore. The pain is just, and it's a pain that it's not a physical pain. Like yeah, you have a pain, you take some medicine and you're fixed. That's right. it. But this, this mental anguish that you're living with day in, day out, and you, at, at, from where you stand, you don't see an end to it. So um, you just seem like, okay, I, I cannot do this anymore. So you just say, okay, what's the way to turn the switch off? How do I turn this off and just be done with it? And that's the way I, um, I saw it. And while you were thinking about turning the switch off, uh, was there a part of you that thought or that recognized that a good part of you was trying to do this or thinking about it where there might have been a conflict within you? Okay, a good idea. No, Shala, it's not a good idea. So what was what was going on? Um, can you can you talk about that or? Well, yeah, because when you, when you decide to do something like this, it's not like you just get up one morning and you say, okay, well, I'm, I think I'm going to end my life today. No, it builds up over months and you're still fighting with yourself and there's a part of you that, yeah, I don't know. I don't want to sound like uh, someone who really, <laughs> you know, says this kind of stuff, but I think women are very strong mentally and they have the ability to uh, fight with these urges because overall, there's a lot of pressure, a lot of emotional pressure on us throughout our lives. And um, we learn how to deal with it. We learn how to cope with it. So over months, I kept, you know, I say, oh, no, I'll just take it one day at a time. I'll take it one hour at a time. I'll just do this. I'll busy myself in, in mundane tasks and I, it'll be over. But it was never over. It just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And it just it just came to a point where it just overflowed and i thought no yeah this has to end this has to stop and you talk about you bring up a very good point in terms of coping um coping strategies coping was there anyone you had shared any of this with as you were um fighting with these thoughts or as you were having these you see uh omer i um yeah, because how, that's how we know each other. We've known each other for quite some time. I was always somebody who was super confident, super outgoing. I was working till I got married. And then, yeah, circumstances didn't allow for me to keep working while, well, after I was married. So I think that loss of, I felt like identity. I felt like I've lost my personal identity and I've just become somebody's wife somebody's mother and I was so caught up in that that I I thought nobody can understand this because my friends were all having they, they all had you know success in their careers they were all becoming people on their own and I felt like ah oh, 
I'm, what did I do with my life? What have I achieved? And you just feel, you just feel worthless. So I really didn't think anybody could understand. So I never really reached out, which I should have. And I, in, in retrospect, I think that would have helped a lot had I reached out. But I just thought that, um, yeah, nobody, nobody cares. Uh, nobody wants to bother. So why bother telling anybody? Because again, it's such a big taboo, mental health, even in this day and age, in our part of the world, it's such a big taboo right. to even discuss this. People simply say, oh, oh, pray, it'll be better. Read the Quran, it'll be better. Busy yourself, you have too much free time. That's why you think all these things. But people don't understand that when you are in that dip, when you are in that place, that very dark place, you don't want to do anything. You don't want to pray. You don't want to talk. You don't want to stay busy. It's losing the will to live. You just want to stay in bed and wish it was all over. So, um, yeah. In terms of your relationship with your husband, uh, could he or was he able to see anything, any change of uh, behavior or any signs where he was able to look into this without you even saying anything? Now, that's a very, very good point and a very good question because I had known my husband for seven years before we got married. We were best friends. I got pregnant really quick, like after a few months after we got married. And this was all in the first couple of years of our marriage. And um, the thing is, you can be someone's best friend. You could have known each other for 10 years, but living together, being married, being in that kind of dynamic changes a lot of things. So there's always an adjustment period. And we were still going through that while we had our first child and having both our mothers not well. It, I think he had, I'm, I'm not going to blame him and I'm not going to defend him, but I'm just going to state the facts that he had a lot going on in his head as well. He was going through a difficult time emotionally himself because yeah, knowing that you're going to lose your mother in a few months is, is not an easy place to be in. Yeah. So yeah, I don't think he, he noticed. And I, again, I did a very good job of covering it. I don't think anybody <laughs> could have guessed because I was social where we were, we were living um, on site where my husband used to work. So it was a very close knit community. There was a lot of socializing. So yeah, I was a very social person. I was hosting people every other day and there was no way anybody could have told what was going on inside my head. So um, yeah, but my husband, I don't think he could have told what was going on inside me. Now also had someone in your circle, extended circle committed mm -hmm. suicide? No. All right. Not, not even remotely. Not that I know of, but not even remotely. And that's why you see there were no red flags. Right. And um, when you see yourself, but again, it's so, it's so complicated that um, when you're, especially you see there, there are two types of depression. There's clinical depression and there's functional depression. And what I had was highly functional depression because I was able to do everything. My house was always clean. My daughter was always clean and fed and taken care of. I was cooking. I was socializing. I was doing everything. But that place inside my head was so dark. And 
I just didn't feel like I could let anybody in, even my closest friends, even my sister. Yeah, my parents, I didn't want to tell them because they had enough to worry about with my mother being ill. So, um, yeah, it was a very lonely place. So I had, I had no way of knowing that it would get so far. Yes. Now, in terms of uh, compartmentalizing your work, your um, family life, and were there any any times where you may have just been busy and doing stuff, and there was a pause, or uh, or you may just stop doing what you were doing, and uh, anyone may have just seen, "Hey, Shella, what's going on?" No, I I think the kind of lifestyle we had. I don't think anybody could have guessed that something was off. I, I don't know. I used to be, when I was younger, I used to be very, you know, open about my feelings. But as I grew older, especially when you get married, you don't want to, you see, in, in the culture where we've grown up, admitting or accepting the fact that you have some sort of a mental health issue is a sign of uh, weakness. You're saying you're not strong enough to cope with how yeah, simple situations. What is it? Nothing. Why are you making such a big deal out of a small issue? So you don't, you don't want to let other people see your weakness and, and the fact that you're, you're struggling. You want to um, maintain this facade of, um, yeah, I have everything under control. I have it all set. It's all going good. It's all smooth. I don't want anyone to know I'm having trouble coping with life in general. So, um, yeah, I don't think so. Uh, if somebody did notice, they didn't mm -hmm. say anything. Okay. <laughs> they kept it to themselves. So you, you, you raise a very valid point, um, maintaining that facade. At any point in time, did the person in the mirror ask you, what the hell are you thinking? Rarely do we bring the person we see in the mirror in these conversations because of what you said that the society we come from, it is hard to admit that there might be a problem. That's the reason I ask you that question. Yeah, um, well, the person in the mirror had become somebody I didn't recognize anymore because my life changed so drastically in 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 the matter of what a year a year and a half from being this confident uh career oriented person who wanted to be somebody by the time you know they're in their late 20s early 30s to becoming um a young mother to becoming somebody who was struggling emotionally with um with all the new responsibilities dealing with the in-laws um yeah marriage Marriage is a big change. So I suppose I wasn't coping very well with the changes. And the person in the mirror just reminded me of who I used to be. And I just didn't recognize that person anymore. So um, my conversations with that person in the mirror were very brief because it was just, yeah, it would just upset me even more. And um, yeah, you, you build an armor around yourself to protect you. And um, it just doesn't let anybody in, sometimes not even yourself. You just try not to think about it. You try not to go too deep inside your head. Oh, yeah, I'll deal with it later. I don't want to deal with this right now. And 
you just move on and you try to, like you said, you try to uh, distract yourself. You try to cope whatever way you can, even if it means just avoiding talking to yourself and coming to terms with your own thoughts. Right. And, uh, and you said in terms of uh, it being functional, you're always busy. You're doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're doing what you're liking. Um, you're taking care of the house. You're taking care of uh, people around you. So you're always doing stuff. Maybe in a way you have that perfect excuse to not think about what's going on or how you might want to handle it based on what I just heard, had that observation. You see, um, I'll give you a very big example of how I, you know, apply that, have applied that to myself in the past when my mother passed away um, back in 2010. It was really sudden. Like one day I spoke to her and the next morning she was gone. So uh, when I actually, I didn't even know till I got to my parents' house in, in Istanbul and it was a very big shock. But do you know what I did? Mm-hmm. I, I saw my father. He was completely shattered. My sister completely shattered. And I told myself, oh, I need to be strong for these people. I need to zip up my emotion, lock it up somewhere. I'll deal with it later. And I just, I think I only cried for like five minutes that day. And what happened was that grief that, you know, it's the biggest, biggest loss ever. Losing a parent is one of the biggest things that can happen to you. So, and I bottled up my grief. Like literally my friends came over in the evening and they were staring at me and they, they were like, how are you normal? Why aren't you more devastated? And my answer was, well, my crying isn't going to bring her back. So I'm not going to cry. And I decided, oh, I go back to my house and I will, I will grieve. I will cry. I will do everything. But I bottled it up for so many days that when I actually wanted to um, let go of the grief, I couldn't. So functional functionality for me came above dealing with my own emotions. And throughout my life, I think dealing with my emotions has come in second place to taking care of people around me. I'd rather be there for somebody else than sit and, you know, think about what's going on inside my head. The point you raise is a fantastic one. And sometimes it is counterproductive to us taking, wanting to take care of ourselves. But, but um, I, I, to, a, to a great extent, I understand where you're coming from in terms of deciding whether taking care of yourself or others. So how did you do it? So what did you exactly I, do? Well, I, I, uh, it was the afternoon, I remember very clearly. And I used to have um, uh, a lady helping me with, with the house chores and, and with, with my daughter. And I dressed her up. Uh, I dressed my daughter, not the lady, but I dressed up my daughter and I sent her out for a walk. She used to be, um, I think, about a year old. And I was all alone at home. And I found every pill that I could find in the house, whether it was anti-allergies and painkillers and 
everything. And I took, I think about 10 of them or 15 maybe. And I just had them and I lay down in bed and I thought, this is it. But uh, I think it was not time for me to go. So I woke up a couple of hours later, a bit blacked out, like, oh, it's only been five minutes. And then I looked at the clock and it was like two, three hours later. So I wasn't very successful at it, thank God. But that's, I, that's what I thought was the most painless way to go. Uh, I was a bit, I don't want to say it was silly, but that's what I was thinking right back then. And that's what made sense back then. You can never, you know, because I've been through that experience, I don't judge people on what they do when they're in a low place. Because sometimes those things are the only things that make sense. Those are the only things you can, um, you know, think of. So in retrospect, you might think, oh, what did you think a few anti-allergy pills would do to you? They weren't going to kill you anyway. But I was, I was desperate. I was, I was lonely. I was, uh, I was in a very dark place. And what was the first thought uh, that came to your head when you woke up? I was, I think I was relieved (laughs) because going through that, I think I, I thought of my first thought was of my daughter. And I think she's the one who probably brought me back to life because yeah, I loved her so much. And I thought then, you know, you go into that phase where you curse yourself. What was I thinking? Why did I do that? I don't want to do this to her. So yeah, I was, I was relieved. I would say that nothing happened. How long did it take you to tell anyone after that? Um, or how long years. was it before you told the first person that you shared this with that, Hey, this is what I did. Many, many, many years later, I told a friend mm-hmm. and yeah, even right now I would never openly admit it to my husband even that I did do it because he would be, you know, you feel oh the other person's going to be so disappointed in me and they're going to think, Oh you, you, yeah, you can do better than that. And uh, you're stronger than that. You're better than that. You have more sense. You're more intelligent, but it took many years for many, many years because I was alone at home. So I, it was easy for me to, keep it to myself but I think I hugged my daughter a lot more after that day um, than I did before your family uh, immediate family um, when they came to know or if they know or uh, members of the family who know how has there been any difference in behavior or perception or uh, attitude since them becoming aware of this no to be very honest they don't know and yeah if I'm if I'm really honest to myself I don't want them to know because it would hurt them it would hurt them that I decided to do something like this rather than share my pain and share my problems with them but like I said in retrospect it all seems very clear that this is what I should have done. This is what I could have done. 
everybody would have been there for me everybody cared but when you're there when you're in that moment when you're in that place it's it's like you're all alone and it's like nobody will understand and you don't want to hurt them you don't want to disappoint them you don't want to appear weak you just want it to end man i'm glad that um you didn't succeed yes i'd, I'd be <laughs> yeah, so I'm glad mad. To. to be honest i would be so mad if i found out that this happened you have no idea um okay in terms of uh, have you have you sought or um, even without telling anyone have you spoken with someone um, have you um, in terms of professional guidance um well i did when initially when the postpartum depression was like you know really i i felt like there's something wrong with me that i don't want to do anything that i don't feel like i have anything to look forward to i did reach out to uh, the only doctor that i knew back then that was my uh, gynecologist and she took it so um i mean she acted like it's no big deal so that kind of reinforced my belief at that time that oh i'm just making a mountain out of a molehill there's nothing to worry about and i'm just being silly i'm being weak i'm being um you know i'm just worrying about nothing and i don't need anything to do and um later on um well we both lost my husband and i we both lost our mothers in 2010 and 2010 was a very well roller coaster of a year and at the end we moved to a, a different country so even though my it, it didn't get that bad i've had bad days there are days where i consider i need help and uh it got a bit uh difficult this past year for some reason i don't know why midlife crisis i suppose i'm nearing my 40s so so i did reach out this time i really did say that i need help i went to my gp and i said maybe you can refer me to a psychologist and uh she did recommend some so i might go if i still continue to have bad days but so far sadly i haven't um been to a medical professional to deal with this but the circumstances have changed that they've made me stronger they've helped me cope better but it's never been that bad you see you now it's more like oh i'm not i'm feeling a bit low it's not like i have no joy in life i have nothing to look forward to so um it's there on and off but i would say i'm fine i'm i'm going to at the risk of uh, profiling <laughs> i'm going to ask you what part of the world your um, gynecologist you said came from so you said you shared it with your um, i believe your gynecologist right yes that was okay. that was back in pakistan oh when, um, okay yeah when i I when my daughter was a newborn and I was having having the really really bad postpartum like depression. Okay. And All I, right. So with this was a Pakistani gynecologist. Yes, and and that that is that's why I said at the risk of uh, profiling, 
I wanted to ask the question because see, this goes back. This is a deep-rooted issue. You see, um, sadly, again, I, I would also say I don't want to create stereotypes, but cultures are, you see, we have things in cultures that make them different from other cultures. Right. We can't just say everybody is the same. Every culture is the same. Every ritual is the same. We have, you know, certain ways that societies think. There are certain, um, I don't know, things that are more taboo in one part of the world that they are than they are in, in another. And there are certain ways people deal with um, things like mental health differently. Like where I am now, I'm, I'm in the Netherlands. People don't feel any shame talking about things like, oh, I'm having a burnout. It's very, you know, easy to talk to. Uh, talk about thing like people just say oh i'm having a burnout i'm getting help so um things like that but in pakistan having a burnout what, what are you talking about yeah man up man up <laughs> be, be strong pray five times a day you'll be fine so, or get married um, or have kids or have more married kids. have another have another child you have too much free time it, i'm not i'm not bad mouthing our culture but that is the way it is so uh, that is the way I've experienced things. Like all the time that I was in Pakistan, I was told, oh, you should do something. Why don't you do something? You have too much free time. But here, when I went to my GP, she simply said, oh, I understand. It's not easy. It can be really difficult. And this is what we should do about it. One thing, and um, I'm glad at the end what you mentioned. So have you become more observant in terms of other folks around you? to to try to pick up any red flags or any change of behavior out of context, out of personality, since you've gone through a lot of uh, the stuff yourself over the years? Well, I of course, uh, when you go through it yourself, you recognize the signs uh, more more easily. They're more visible to you than to other people. But the one thing that, my whole experience changed in me has definitely uh, been that I don't, I stopped judging people on how they cope with different life events or um, with different situations. And I, I never say, Oh, you should do this. I always, I always tell them, even if it's my friends or mostly, yeah, it's my friends. I'm, I always say, I'm here to listen. I'm, I'm here to listen. I can understand what you must be going through, but I cannot imagine because every person deals with it, feels it differently. So all I try to do is I try to be there more like without judgment. I'm, I always tell my friends, nothing you tell me will be so bad that I will stop being friends with you or I will judge you. Just tell me what's, what's going on. And I do recommend if I feel that it's not something that's, going to go away by uh, talking to friends, I always tell them, please get help. Please get professional help. Because yeah, like you, I'm not a trained professional when it comes to mental health. I've just been somebody who, who deals with it in, in my daily life. But I do tell them there's no shame in getting help. We're human beings. The brain, the mind is as much of an organ as 
your kidney or your heart or your stomach. So treat it as an organ, take care of it, get help. On any given day, personal life is far better than a deceased friend or sister or mom or wife. So, okay, I'm, I'm glad um, you kind of elaborated on that. So you spoke about coping. Anything, anyone listening to our conversation, what would you want to tell them? Anything that may have worked for you or any coping mechanisms um, from simple to whatever level of complexity? What would you tell someone who's going through that and maybe thinking about it? I think the biggest coping mechanism is to remind yourself you don't need 20 people to love you and adore you and give you time, especially as you grow older. People get busier. You're not going to have friends talking to you every day. Everybody's busy. But the one thing you need to remind yourself when you go into that dark places, there is somebody, at least one person, for whom the world would be empty if you're not in it so you're precious don't 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 think you're worthless no one is worthless everybody deserves to be happy and you have to make your happiness yourself every single day i know it's hard i know it seems impossible on days i have i still have bad days but then i do remind myself that I don't need five million people loving me every day. I need one or two or three. And you always have those. And it's worth living. It's worth healing to be there for them tomorrow. Because they'll, they'll be very happy to see your face tomorrow morning. Fantastic. Fascinating. And thank you for putting it in such a nice, encouraging way, uh, coming from someone who's actually gone through that. I really appreciate that. And in terms of going back to our brief mention of culture and society, how would you want to see things improve, even on a very individual-to-individual level or um, a very um, ground level? to be able to cope with these things? Um, with reference to Pakistani, mental South health, Asian Yes, uh, in, in, in respect to mental health and being able to cope with these things or identify these things. Yes, definitely Pakistani, South Asian community. I think, I, I think with our generation, things are already changing because the stories I hear and see coming from that part of the world, I think people are already becoming more aware of mental health issues they're they're talking about it the taboo is is dissolving the stigma is being removed but um there's still a long way to go but i think they're they're headed in the in the right i think you have more access to mental health profession professionals now in in pakistan and well i can only talk about pakistan because that's that's where i'm from but I think the stigma is slowly dissolving. There, there's work in the media being done about it. So um, awareness, awareness is everything, I suppose, at the end of the day, as is with any issue. 
as long as you create an awareness that people know about it, people know how to recognize it, and people know that yeah, there's nothing wrong about um, talking about it. So um, that's, that's the only way forward. Yeah, I'm just going to thank you. And also the fact that you didn't succeed. Um, yes, you have I'm no idea. Because I was so surprised when I heard this. I commend you for being able to speak with me and uh, to share your thoughts and uh, your experiences. Because even if this can help even one person in any respect, exactly. I believe I've succeeded. And uh, I'm sure you're going to feel a whole lot better in terms of contributing to someone because uh, this is something I really want to not come across. Uh, so thank you very much once again for your time and uh, being able to share this with us. Uh, Have a nice day too. Thank all you. All right.